you know, the threat landscape is changing. It has changed. It is not the same threat picture that we saw in January. We're seeing our adversaries, and in particular China, Russia, and Iran, targeting our pharmaceutical, our lab, our R&D for COVID vaccines. We are constantly analyzing data that's flowing through our holdings, from our sensors, through cloud telemetry. And based on that analysis, we're triggering either automated actions or triggering our analysts to go and hunt in an agency network, see what an adversary may be doing. Federal IT has played a critical role in sustaining delivery of critical services to citizens during the COVID-19 pandemic. As the government and the nation take the first steps toward recovery, Maritalk is chronicling the untold stories and lessons of federal IT operations during these months of pandemic. Welcome to the Maritalk podcast series, CIO Crossroads, Federal IT and the COVID Crisis. In this chapter, we explore cybersecurity operations at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. CISA, a component agency of the Department of Homeland Security, or DHS, protects federal civilian executive branch and U.S. critical infrastructure from physical and cyber threats. It also works closely with organizations in the 16 critical infrastructure sectors to support their priorities. In an exclusive interview with Maritalk, Brian Ware, Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at CISA, reveals that the threats to the pharmaceutical hospital, and public health agency sectors they have uncovered are downright alarming. The agency has identified and targeted 10,000 critical vulnerabilities, taken action to block 7,000 malware domains, and worked with the Department of Health and Human Services to take down another 10,000 fraudulent domains. CISA has notified more than 100 organizations that they are active threat targets and offered help. And while the world desperately waits for a COVID-19 vaccine, CISA is beating back efforts by Chinese, Russian, and Iranian government hackers to steal U.S.-based research on vaccine development. The battle is far from over, but CISA's cyber defenders are taking every measure to make sure the war is won. So Brian, tell us about some of your largest priorities and successes during this pandemic. The first priority really going back to February is to take everything that, that CISA, that the cybersecurity directorate normally does, and, and look at it through a different lens and that say, how can we take all of our assets, our tools, our capabilities, our knowledge, and use them to protect the, our nation's COVID response from a cybersecurity perspective. And so my colleagues in CISA at the National Risk Management Center had done some really early work to try to identify what the critical infrastructure was going to be to get us through this period of time. And that became like the critical infrastructure workers guidance that all the states adopted to figure out who could go to work even when they were shut down. So that product became something that we used to focus our outreach to pharmaceutical companies, hospital companies, public health agencies, offer them cyber scanning services that we, we've had those services for a while. They just been, hadn't been specifically focused on that COVID response. 
Beyond the scanning, we've done a number of, of things for the, that industry. We've done threat briefings for them, vulnerability briefings. We published a number of products that are specific to that sector and specific to COVID-related threat. That is kind of like new priority, new focus, number one. I think the second thing is that I've been really focused on what we're calling our CSD 2025 strategy. We built that strategy in my first uh, few weeks on the job. It's a five-year strategy. It's where we want to be, where we think the world is going to be in five years, and what we need to do to modernize this agency and improve all of our capabilities. So developing that strategy, communicating that strategy, building out that strategy is something that we've been able to do you know, potentially better in a remote way than we might have done in the office, just from the sense that we've removed all those meetings and other clutter and can spend some time on the strategy. And then, and then just the last thing I'll mention, because I think it, it really does bear mentioning, during this pandemic, we've still kept up with the other important missions that we're entrusted with, in particular, protecting federal networks, federal government cybersecurity. And so we haven't really stopped doing anything, but we have been able to prioritize and focus kind of uniquely on driving that long-term strategy and protect our nation's COVID response while at the same time just getting the core mission done. Can you provide some metrics that illustrate success? I mentioned that we started these scanning services. So we're scanning now a couple hundred new IP ranges. So these are internet connected IPs for pharmaceutical companies and hospitals and public health agencies. Those have identified, we're up into the 10,000 or so critical vulnerabilities. Again, these are vulnerabilities that we're finding through internet scans. And when I say critical, these are, these are serious vulnerabilities for the parts of industry that we're, we're particularly concerned about. I mean, we don't just want to scan and tell the companies about a vulnerability that we see or, or, or scan and write a report on it. We do those things, but we've been working and engaging with those companies to address the vulnerabilities. And we have closed several thousand of those critical vulnerabilities. And the majority of the vulnerabilities that we've identified have been closed to this point. This is one of the ways I think that, you know, we, we've tailored an existing program and an existing capability to focus on trying to protect that COVID response. I would say in addition to that, we work with our IC partners and we work with industry partners in a, through a, a variety of different collaboration mechanisms. So working with them, we've been able to block several thousand malicious domains from the government networks. And then we've also been able to work with Health and Human Services to take down approaching 10,000 fraudulent domains. So these are domains that are credential harvesting or something along those lines using COVID as the lure. So you know, fraud, not malware, but still certainly malicious. We've done a number of target notifications as well. This is really just a refinement of processes that exist where we work with our intelligence community partners. When we're seeing an entity that is being targeted by an adversary, one of the things that CISA does is that we notify that targeted entity and then we work with that entity to, if there's an incident response needed or, or really just some technical assistance. And so we've, we've also had you know, well over 100 target notifications just in the last two months that are focused on COVID response companies. What are some of your general insights on increased cybersecurity threats during the pandemic, expanded attack services associated with telework, and your activities to counter them? 
I think this is a really important topic because, you know, the threat landscape is changing. Uh, it has changed. It is not the same threat picture that we saw in January. The first thing that, that I'll say is that we've seen a lot of phishing and malicious, you know, websites, as I mentioned before, that are just, it's the same criminal activities that were always there. It's just that the tactic has shift to use COVID as the lure, right? So, I mean, that completely makes sense. We've certainly seen, you know, a number of those incidents from emails that contain malware that looks like it's coming from the Director General of the World Health Organization, but that's an impersonation. We've seen others that are claiming to offer PPE. Those are typical criminal activities, just as the lure has changed. We've also been concerned about and are seeing ransomware. Again, another very typical activity, but there's an attraction to criminal actors using ransomware in times of crisis because, you know, when lives are on the line, they have the belief that they're more likely to get paid. This has been something that we've been really concerned about from the very beginning. We didn't want to see a ransomware event in the United States that compromised healthcare or the delivery of healthcare. We have seen some of those take place, um, in particular in the Czech Republic. With, uh, there was another German company. There have been some isolated ransomware impacts on the health operations in the U.S., but thankfully, we haven't seen anything that are significant. And again, we're working with our law enforcement intelligence colleagues to, to do everything we can to prevent that from taking place. But I want to focus like, on two threats that I think are really concerning and really important. And one of those is that we're seeing our adversaries, and in particular, China, Russia, and Iran, targeting our pharmaceutical, our lab, our R&D for COVID vaccines, uh, antivirals, and various medical technology. This is in the playbook of China to, to steal intellectual property. They've been doing that for decades, and then the transfer of that technology to their own manufacturers and labs. But we're, we're now seeing a focus you know, very specifically on vaccines and related. And so uh, that threat is, is certainly one that we've been very concerned about. Every enterprise has, has increased their use of cloud, of teleworking products. Some of those may be hastily configured and hastily deployed. And so we, we are seeing targeting of that home work environment, targeting of that remote work environment, really across the board from you know, all of the, the, the kinds of threats that I just mentioned are certainly at play in the home environment, phishing and so forth. But I think that you know, there are vulnerabilities that have existed for a long period of time in many of the kinds of products that we use to work remotely. And those now have changed considerably the risk to the enterprise we published something I thought was really a helpful paper, insightful paper in the last week or two. It's kind of like the top 10 vulnerabilities, but what, the way that we did this is we looked not at the prevalence or anything else, but the vulnerabilities that adversaries are exploiting. And so we did two periods of time. One was kind of 2017 to 2019, but then we also did a 2020 so far. What we are seeing in that 2020 so far is the targeting of VPN vulnerabilities. And this is something that we've been writing about and talking about for a long time. But of course, those virtual private networks are the way that many workers are, uh, the only way that many of us can work in the, that top 10 vulnerabilities. We link to the specific vulnerability and how to mitigate that vulnerability inside of that document so that if you're a CIO or CISO, you can take action there. Also with the FBI, we have written a few publications on the way that the Chinese are targeting our, our research institutions and pharmaceutical research. 
And then the other one is really not a classic cybersecurity issue. It's more of a misconfiguration issue. And that would be misconfigurations of Office 365 and other teleworking products that were done just to hastily deploy. So we're not talking about Zoom bombing today like we were a few weeks ago, but I think we all know that those kind of hasty deployments of tools have presented some cybersecurity risks. So that, you know, that I think is the, the breadth of the, the risks that, that we're seeing, the, the breadth of the threats that we're seeing that are kind of unique to this environment. Do you have any metrics on downloads of those new reports or their use within government? I can tell you that some of them have been amongst the most most visitors in the history of our CISA websites. We've seen, I think across the board with a lot of the COVID-related production that we've done, that, you know, it's been very popular. A, a lot of really good community feedback on that most exploited vulnerabilities. You know, with the feedback being, has anyone ever seen a product like this before? And no one could ascribe one. It, the vantage point that we have is a unique vantage point, and we don't always write enough about it. And so I think that that one, you know, being able to tie which nation state adversaries were leveraging which vulnerabilities that, that exist, I think was a, was a really useful new product. Can you tell us about how CIS's Quality Services Management Office, or QSMO, works with other agencies? Absolutely. So I look at QSMO as being as, as much a business model as anything. You know, QSMO will be the storefront for cybersecurity products and services for the U.S. government and potentially beyond the U.S. government. It really builds on the foundation that CDM has set over the many years, but it takes a different approach than having an integrator to kind of acquire, assemble, integrate, and deploy products. That model is still very important and still very much a part of uh, not just what we're doing right now, but the future of CSD. But QSPO takes a bit of a different approach and it just says, look, we want to make sure that every best of breed product is available to the U.S. government and that we know that it's the best of breed product. So we, we have to have ways to ensure that that product does what it says it does and that it meets the needs of the U.S. government by buying As an integrated buyer, we expect that we'll be able to drive some standardization, we'll be able to drive some features, we'll be able to drive some cost efficiencies uh, by buying once instead of buying 100 times. That business model is really to make sure that we are partnering with industry and saying, look, these are the kinds of products that we need for the whole of the .gov. Um, and they need to work together, at least to some degree, so that, we've, that we're able to get the visibility and the controls on the backside. That we're, we'll be able to get efficiencies across government from a standpoint of, like, we all know how these products work, and these products work in our environments well, and they work together well. So, you know, it's just a refinement of the way that we're doing things into a, a new business model that will allow us to operate at scale and achieve efficiencies and support multiple different ways of dealing with the fiscal side, too. We can be a cost reimbursable, so an agency can buy from the QSMO, or we can provide a QSMO service through our funding to a department or agency. So uh, we envision that every agency in the executive branch will be positioned to take services from QSMO, and I think that we'll work over time as well to, to extend that into state and local government agencies when and where we're able to. And how does QSMO engage with the CDM program? Yeah, so right now they're going to run side by side. So CDM is going strong. We're doing really important work there. QSMO, we're really just getting started and piloting. Assuming that we are successful with our QSMO ambitions, then CDM will be really about the delivery 
of services to the departments and agencies, integrating things, building things, configuring things uh, through CDM. And QSMO will really be about kind of the more off the shelf part of the marketplace. And so I, th I think they'll relate to each other in the sense that my configuration and integration is gonna be of a QSMO product inside of a department or agency. And some of those QSMO products may not require that. They may be kind of self-serve, have a very low touch from an integration standpoint, which is really a major part of what CDM does today. Brian, what are your longer term thoughts on the future requirements for agile cybersecurity as promoted by CISA? I want us to, to really embrace being faster, embracing modern architectures and modern implementations, being much more customer service oriented. We don't just produce a, a product or deliver a capability but we really need to, to take on the posture where we understand who our customers are and what their needs are and if we're meeting those needs. And so that means a lot of different things. And it means analyzing trends, using the data holdings that we have to, to really analyze and then working with the customers or the users and say, you know, why can't we get these vulnerabilities closed? And can we do a better job of delivering a product or capability to you that's gonna close that vulnerability, right? When I look at where we're at today, what concerns me is that month over month, historically to date, we're losing visibility. We're not gaining visibility of what's happening on the network. All of us are constrained by budgets, but we're really constrained by a workforce, right? They're, they're just, the skill sets that we need are in very short supply. It's a very competitive market. It's hard to attract people to come to government. We don't quite have the visibility I think we need or the control that we need. We're going to have a hard time upskilling and continuing to build our workforce. And in the meantime, our adversaries are finding cyber means to be very effective at accomplishing their objectives. What are your bigger picture goals for CISA? Strategically, we are going to push very hard to get more and more visibility. We need to see where the adversary is. We need to see where the vulnerabilities are. We need to see that absolutely in the government networks, but there's no difference in, in most cases between threats against government and threats against parts of industry. So we, we wanna have a lot more visibility. As we get that, we're gonna to have to really mature our use of the cloud. If we're going to work across all that data, we're gonna to have to leverage cloud and cloud tools. If we wanna see the traffic as the other agencies and departments are moving to the cloud, and are, and are leveraging SaaS services, then, then we have to be there too if we want to have the visibility that it's, is required. And my belief is that we're going to be able to deliver not only efficiencies through cloud, but really leverage analytics so that we can scale up our services in a very analytically driven way. So we're not reacting to an incident that's occurred, but more we are constantly analyzing data that's flowing through our holdings, through, from our sensors, through cloud telemetry. And based on that analysis, we're triggering either automated actions or triggering our analysts to go and hunt in an agency network, see what an adversary may be doing. We're gonna to have to build that on top of this cloud infrastructure, which is really a major, major part of our strategy. And that cloud infrastructure will support our QSMO offering too. So again, if you think about QSMO as being this virtual storefront for all of your cybersecurity needs, the front of that store is, is where the departments and agencies walk in, they, they come up to a website, they pull down the products that they need, but the back end of that store, all of the data that comes through those products, we want that data not only to be there for that department or agency's CISO, but also to be in our cloud environment so that we can correlate it with all of the rest of the data across the .gov. Brian, what would you say is the greatest lesson you've learned since the pandemic began? 
we've figured out that we can do just about all of our mission from home. That is a fairly profound awareness that maybe we can change the way that we work. Maybe we can allow a lot more telework in the future. Maybe we don't need a geographically focused workforce in the national capital region. I've been really blown away by how well prepared we were for teleworking. We went on a test telework day and never came back. But I've been really impressed with both our workforce, our use of our technology, but also the mission that we have. Even though a lot of that mission is done in the highest levels of classification, the vast majority of what we're doing is unclassified and can be done from a remote office. How would you grade intergovernmental collaboration and cooperation at this time? I'm collaborating better with my IC partners. I think we're collaborating very effectively with the department and agency CIOs and CISOs. The negative or the the challenge is that our schedules are all a little wonky, but once we connect, the effectiveness of that connection, to me, seems like it's better than it it was before all of this started. Have you got any shout outs, maybe from within CISA or across the federal government? I want to just really recognize and applaud, draw your attention to the National Risk Management Center inside of CISA. You know, when I saw them, you know, maybe before I came into CISA, I thought these guys were going to do wonky analytical risk assessments and publish them in books that no one was going to read. When this COVID crisis came about, they were the first ones that were publishing. These were all the critical parts of, of industry. They're not the ones that we thought were critical Years ago, they were highlighting the guys that produce food and the grocery stores and PPE makers and all of this. And they produced products that almost every state adopted their risk analysis, some of them verbatim. I just find that they've been really at the tip of the spear in this really challenging environment of trying to figure out how all these supply chains fit together and what's important. And then once we know, like from a cybersecurity perspective, once I know what's important, I know how to deliver my cybersecurity services to it. But that hard part of like identifying it and then communicating it, I think NRMC has done a great job. Bob Kalaski has the same title I do. He's the assistant director for the Nashville Management Center, has led that initiative. I, I just think it's been really superb. Okay. Any thoughts on the CIO Council collaboration? I think our interactions there, at least, I feel like it's been great since I've been here and continues to be a, a strong spot for us, our integration with them. You know, the QSMO we were talking about earlier, all of the initial pilots that we're doing through the QSMO, the, those product categories, those all came from that CIO council, right? It is those CIOs telling us where to start rather than us going back, you know, to the lab or whatever and doing what we thought was important. And so I really value the, the advice, the feedback, the, the sounding board that they provide. How are you going to survive and work without conferences? What does that mean for industry interaction? I really love happy hour that follows the conference. So I miss that like you wouldn't believe. It just feels different to me to meet somebody by shaking their hand than it does you know, all of these, these screen-to-screen interactions that we're doing. What I will note, though, that's kind of interesting is that the social media impact of virtual conferences seems greater than when we had physical conferences, probably because you guys have to promote them a little bit more. It's probably because that's all any of us have. But I do think that in some ways, we might be getting our message out a little bit more broadly than we were able to when it was only physical meetings and physical locations. Today, we've been talking to CISA's Assistant Director for Cybersecurity, Brian Ware. Brian, 
Thanks for sharing your thoughts and your time with us today. All right. Take care, everyone. And thank you, listeners, for joining Meritalk's podcast series, CIO Crossroads, Federal IT in the COVID Crisis. We hope you'll continue to join us as we take a look at Federal IT's reaction to the crisis, the challenges faced along the way, and ultimately, the success stories that have kept America rolling.